All right, we're going to be in uh, the gospel, uh, not the gospel, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bible, please follow along right there with me. Uh, we have had a number of technical difficulties this morning already, and I see that I've got another one yet to deal with, so give me just a moment to fix my iPad in appropriate ways. There we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is part of Paul's letter, of course, to the church at Corinth, but a chapter that in total deals with the glorious theme of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection with him. You have a scripture sheet in your bulletin. All the scriptures, I believe, will also be on the screen behind me this morning. Hear God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Let's skip down to verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And I read to this point, but I could surely go on for all 58 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, relate to our focus this morning, the resurrection of Christ, and thus Easter. We have special interest in verse 19, where Paul asks and then answers the question, what if there was no Easter? What if there was no Easter? What, what a thought. What a terrible, terrible thought that would be. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to have no Easter? That would be unthink, unthinkable for us. Retailers all over America would pan it. The bonnet industry, that, that would crumble. Well, I'm looking around. I'm not seeing a lot of bonnets today. Uh, Macy's would have to find yet another, uh, another uh, way to advertise their spring sales, and early spring sale doesn't sound quite as good as Easter extravaganza. Without Easter, NBC would not know when to show their religious movies. Schools would not know when to give their students a break. Easter seals would become, oh, I don't know, Easter, Lincoln's birthday seals, and of course, the Easter bunny would have to find another holiday to desecrate. There would be chaos in our culture without Easter. Well, what I say here, I say in jest, although we kind of experienced this last year, didn't we? 
because none of you came last year, as I recall, on Easter. But Paul has some things to say on this subject that are quite serious. What if there were no Easter? Or put another way, what if Christ had not ever risen from the grave? The apostle begins to answer that question in verse 14, and he says this, even if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, Christianity is still a great faith. It's still a great way of life. Is that what he says? Not at all. Instead, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain, vain, useless, futile, big waste of time. And Paul says, if no Easter, my preaching is a big joke. It's a waste of my breath. He also says, your faith is vain. And may I go a short step further and propose that what is fully being taught here is that without Easter, life itself is vain. It is a cruel joke, and at the end of the road, we find out that we are all April fools. Now, many Christians would take issue with that statement. Soren Kierkegaard asked the question, if the body of Jesus were discovered tomorrow and Christianity thus proven to be a lie, how many clergymen would resign within the week? And the answer to that is probably not that that many. They have reasons, as do many of us, to go along with the idea of the resurrection. But Paul said, huh, without this reality, it is all meaningless, vanity of vanities, if there is no Easter. Why, why am I saying that? Why did Paul say that? Well, for one, it leaves us without any actual grip on spiritual reality. Every other philosophy and religion is based on the ideas of human imagination. But the Christian faith takes us right to history for its basis. The redemptive events in Christ, especially the resurrection, these are the gateways to knowledge about ultimate realities. Without the resurrection, who knows what is happening? Certainly, who knows what is happening on the other side of death? Why, life would be vain without Easter. Why is that? Because without Easter, we are stuck with a terminal existence. Without Easter, we only have three score and ten, or maybe one score and seven, or maybe less than that. Who knows? We face the constant reality that death could always come and put an end to all of our labors and all of our dreams and all of our relationships. Without death, or without Easter, death is, is it. Death conquers. Death wins. And no thinking human being can live with that idea. In his uh, little book, Pigeon Feathers, John Updike deals with a little boy by the name of David who is troubled about heaven and wants to be assured that there is such a thing and that he himself is going there. And in his catechism class in his church, uh, the reverend of his church said that heaven is sort of like the goodness that Lincoln did living on after him. Not, not a church like ours. David objected to this and said, but is Lincoln conscious of it living on after him? Later he complains to his mother. He said, I don't understand ministers who say it's like Lincoln's goodness living on after him. And his mother said, honey, I think uh, Reverend Dobson made a mistake. You must try to forgive him. And, and little David said, it's not a question of him making a mistake. It's a question of dying and never moving or seeing or hearing or, or seeing anything ever again. 
In exasperation, his mother replies, Darling, it's so greedy of you to want more when God has given us this wonderful day. And our farm, and you have your whole life ahead of you. And finally, the young man says to his mother, Mother, good grief, don't you see? If when we die, there's nothing. All of your sons and fields and whatnot, they're all just a horror. It's all just a horror. And this is a theme that is repeated many times in modern literature and cinema. The existentialists want us to face up to what life is like post-God, with no God in the picture. The nihilists, like Frederick Nietzsche, shout at us and say, life is meaningless. Come to grips with that. There are no ultimate morals. There are no values. There is no purpose to anything. And if death eats it up in the end, then we must concede that that is correct. Ingmar Bergman states the dilemma of modern man in a dialogue contained in his film, The Seventh Seal. And here a conversation ensues between one called Night and another called Death. Night says, I want knowledge, not faith, not supposition, but knowledge. I want God to stretch out his hand towards me to reveal himself and speak to me. Death says, but he remains silent. Night, I call out to him in the dark, but no one seems to be there. And death offers, perhaps no one is there. And night says, then life is an outrageous horror. No one can live it in the face of death, knowing that all is nothing. Will Durant, former chair of the philosophy department at Columbia, wrote this, God, who was once the consolation of our brief life and our refuge in bereavement and suffering, don't go too far, Deb, <laughs> uh, has apparently vanished from the scene. No telescope. No microscope discovers him. Life has become a fitful breeding of human insects on the earth. Nothing is certain in it except death, defeat, and death, a sleep from which it seems there is no awakening. Faith and hope disappear. Doubt and despair are the order of the day. It seems impossible any longer to believe in the permanent greatness of man or to give life a meaning that cannot be annulled by death. Is that the end? There's more. The greatest question of our time is not communism versus individualism, not Europe versus America, not even East versus West. It is whether a man can bear to live without God. And that ends our quote from Will Durant. But what do so many people do? with these dismal realities. They don't think about them. They fill up their lives with a sensual tingle in an effort to forget. What if there is no Easter? Paul says it well, verse 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Baby, you know, we only go around once in life, so go for the gusto, and then, and then we rot. If no Easter, preaching is vain, faith is useless, man himself is a useless passion, and my friend, your life is vain. 
Well, the apostle goes on from there, and in verse 15, he says, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. All of the preachers and all of the missionaries of all time have given themselves for a lie. They have even sinned against God by saying God did something he actually did not do. This would make us Jehovah's false witnesses. And still there's more. If no Easter, verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You foolish Christians talking about forgiveness, talking about the atoning death for sinners. If Jesus did not rise again, that death was only a death like every other death. The guilt you know is yours. That guilt is still with you. Nobody has paid for it. So you will. You are still in your sins carrying that weight and that burden. Things are not looking good, are they? If no Easter, verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The martyrs, they all died in vain. That beloved Christian friend or parent or spouse, you will not see that person ever again. They're not floating around in the clouds somewhere. They're dead. They're gone. If no Easter, death is simply decay, and it is rot. It is the final stop on a trip to nowhere. And finally, if no Easter, verse 19 says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And so if you're a skeptic among us this morning, don't get angry at the silly Christians who talk to you about Jesus and about eternal life. Pity that person. Again, if we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all most to be pitied. The Christian has put all of his Easter eggs in one basket. And if Christ is not raised, that basket can't hold the eggs. Pity that man. Pity that woman. Now, we've just been over some pretty heavy territory. If no Easter, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christians are pitiable, the dead are dead, we are still in our sins, Christians are false witnesses, faith is vain, life itself is pointless. Man, if Christ is not raised, if Easter isn't real, this is all the pits. But we stopped at verse 19. Thankfully, Paul goes on and he gets us to verse 20 where it says, read it with me, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. What would be terrible, what would, what would be is terrible, but, but glory to God, we don't face what could be, would be, might be. Christ is risen, he says. Easter is real. But wait, wait a second, Pastor. Words are cheap. How do we know it's true? Why do we, why does Paul believe in Easter? Why, what does Paul say in answer to that question? Does he say, man, we have to believe in Easter because the options are so bleak. We have to believe that he's alive. And in stating it like that, he's equating belief with what? Pretending. <laughs> now, some might want to do that, but Christianity never runs away from the facts. It always runs to them. The options are bleak, but that's not why we believe Jesus is risen. No, we believe in Easter because... Uh, because the story of Christ and his example, they rise up within our hearts, inspiring us evermore to a life that benefits all of mankind. Well, that's the kind of silliness you may hear 
in certain quarters of the church. Uh, that, uh, an idea that denies the bodily resurrection but affirms Easter in the soft glow of some sentimentality. Paul, on the other hand, would have none of that. If Christ is not really risen, stop the music, quit the games, face the vanity of your belief, and let mankind go to the dogs. Why believe in Easter? Well, Paul gives two reasons. Number one is that the Bible says Christ rose from the dead. Verse 4, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Right, now, what if I don't believe the Bible, Paul? What about that, huh? Well, don't panic. Paul goes on and says, number two, believe in Jesus because the risen Christ has appeared to us. Verse five, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. He, he could have added, go talk to them, go, go see them if you need to. He goes on, most of them remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul says, I know that Jesus lives because I've seen him, and I was not alone in this. This was not some individual mirage that I was experiencing. 500 others testify that they have seen the risen Christ as well. The Easter message has been passed on to the world through men and women who were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. So 2 Peter 1.16 says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses. So what do you say? Were these guys false witnesses of the resurrection? Were the founders of the Christian church just rank deceivers? Well, consider this question. Would a man die for something he knows to be a lie? Maybe he would die for a lie. Plenty have probably done that. But for something he knows to be a lie? That, that seems ridiculous. That is a psychological absurdity. But every apostle, history tells us, died preaching the message that Christ is risen from the dead. The Bible records it as well. The early Christians sealed their testimony with their very own blood. And what about the enemies of the church? They never debated the, the message of the resurrection. They never got into the actual issue there. Had they produced the body of Jesus, Christianity would have been snuffed out in its infancy. But no one had the body. No one could explain the empty tomb. No one could explain the total change and the incredible certainty they saw and heard from the apostles themselves and hundreds of others saw the resurrected Lord. And frankly, no one can explain the transformation of millions of lives throughout the centuries, millions of who have an encounter of some sort with the living Jesus. Now, I'll, I'll be honest, I, it was Easter Sunday, 1967, that I came to personal faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I've been a Christian a few years, and I, I, I went through that period you go through growing up, becoming an adult. I, I majored in philosophy. I went to seminary. I've had my doubts as a Christian I've studied all the major assaults against the faith. I've even invented a few of my own, I think. But every time, every time I 
sink into doubt, I, I come back to this. Who is this Jesus, and how can I explain history? How can I explain my life apart from Easter? There is another, no other worldview that fits reality even close to the way this fits reality. I've looked at the options. It's either full-blown Christian faith or it's nihilism with its dark pronouncement that life is meaningless. Take your pick. I'm just glad to say that the Christian faith fits the facts better than any other view of the world. I'm not saying it answers all of our questions. It certainly does not. But it fits the facts better than any other understanding of what the world is all about and why we are here. Now, we've seen then today the question, what if there is no Easter? And we've seen why the if is not necessary, hallelujah. We've seen why we believe in Easter. Now let's replace the if with a since. Let's see what we come up with. Since Easter is true, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. Got that? Since Easter is true, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. Now there are only three options about Christ. Either he is a liar and the greatest deceiver the world has ever seen, or else he is a lunatic who thought that he was God's son, or he is who he said he is, the very son of the living God, God incarnate. And I mean, listen, anybody who claims to be the son of God and who claims he's going to rise from the dead, even names the day, and, and he's going to come again someday with the angels to judge the world, that person is either a liar, or he is a nut job, or he is the Lord of heaven and earth, liar, Lord, lunatic. Where do you stand? Jesus gave some direction as to how to answer this trilemma. He asked the question at one point, you want proof about my claims? Then here it is. I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. Uh, if I do that, trust me. And he said that, by the way, to his enemies. And I think anyone would admit that's a fair challenge. That's a fair challenge. And his enemies took him so seriously that when he did die, what'd they ask? They, they asked the Roman governor, put a guard over his tomb. Make sure there's no monkey business because he said he was going to rise from the dead. Let's make sure that doesn't happen. But it didn't stop him. Death could not stop him. The Roman guard could not stop him. He arose, and God cast his vote at the resurrection, saying, this Jesus is my son. He is Lord of heaven and earth. In Romans 1.4, we read this, that he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. At the resurrection, God was saying with thunderous voice, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And in Acts not too long ago, we went through the book of Acts, and we saw what the message of the apostle was, apostles was. It was a simple argument over and over again. Christ is risen, therefore he is Lord. That's the, that's the point. He's risen, therefore Lord. Acts 2.32, this Jesus, God raised up again. Verse 36, 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In Acts 5, Peter again says in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior. We keep going in Acts chapter 10, verse 40. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. And this passage takes us to our second application for the morning. Since Easter is true, brother and sister, friend, visitor, boys and girls, you must get ready to meet Jesus because he is appointed as judge of the living and the dead, and you fall into one of those two categories. Doubt now if you must, but you will meet Jesus someday. How and when is up to you. He said he would rise from the dead, and he did it. He said he would return to judge all men. Do not bet against Jesus. Get ready to meet him. Acts 17, verse 30, Paul says, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has given proof, and since Easter is true, you, each one of you, must get ready to meet Jesus. How do you do that? Well, our third application is to believe in Jesus, to trust in him with your heart. Romans 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's simple, isn't it? Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. But that is also very critical. And if I polled the group this morning, I bet 95% of you would say something to the effect that, yeah, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, even the bodily resurrection, and, and I guess you do with your mind. But God's Word says you won't be saved from sin unless you believe it from your heart. And that means not only that you assent to His claims, but that you personally trust in him. And when you do, it will show in your life. Something in your mind only affects your mind. But when it seeps into your heart, when it grabs a hold of the very core of your being, it affects everything about you, the way you live and the way you choose and the way you think and, yes, the way you feel. So I asked, does your faith in the risen Christ make you any different than your unbelieving neighbor? If not, I propose it is not heart faith. It's not saving faith. So don't run away from your conscience just now. Honestly, look at yourself, and if you know that Easter has not changed you, I invite you to put your trust in Christ today. Trust Him with your death and with your life. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart.
that God raised him from the dead, you will be, the promise of God's word is you will be saved. When you do this, please let me know. Let some Christian friend know. Since Easter is true, you can trust our Jesus from your heart. Fourth application briefly. Since Easter is, since Christ lives, we too shall live. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then later we read this in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, that picture of the kids up there, because that's the theme of our nursery, by the way. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Just kidding. In Christ, <laughs> all shall be made alive. What truth is more essential for my soul than that? You know, Jesus in, the, in John 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus, said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And finally, since Easter is, we should serve Christ with all of our heart and all of our soul Look at the concluding logic of the apostle again. Well, look at verse 31 first. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I died daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Sleep in, don't strive, don't sweat over anything, not if death prevails. But he says, verse 54, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren. And this is the conclusion of this whole great chapter on the resurrection, the last verse. What does it mean for us, Christian? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You know what it's like to work in vain? to build something only to watch it be destroyed, to clean something only to watch it immediately get dirtied again. Wasted effort, wasted toil. Paul says everything is like that if death is it. But Christ, he says, is risen. Your toil is not in vain. It counts and it counts forever. Therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Since he is alive, I pour myself out in his service with the pure reward of knowing that my deeds will follow me and the victory is sure. So merchants can have their sales. Easter means profits and eggs and bunnies and TV specials. But for those of us who understand it, since Easter is true... We know that Christ is God's Son. 
We prepare ourselves to meet him. We believe in him with all our hearts. We will live with him, and we will, we should, we get to serve Christ with diligence and endurance. And all God's people said, amen. Father, we come before you grateful today for yet another Easter celebration. Lord, where we have doubt, and some of us surely do, we pray that you would address them in the depths of our soul, that you would show up and drive away the clouds and the questions and let us see Jesus more perfectly and purely than we ever have before. Father, for those of us who are weary, we pray that you would revive us, would strengthen our hands and give energy to our hearts and minds. Lord, many of us are just distracted. So many other things have grabbed our attention. We pray that you would pull our eyes away from those other things to focus on Christ, Savior and Lord, and who is appropriately the center of every thought and word and deed. Holy God, thrill us today with the truth of your word, the glories of the resurrection, that we might meet all the challenges of this life with confidence that our Savior is risen, that he is king, and that he is with us. And we pray in his name. Amen.